Gavin. Louis. You've been a dirty birdie. <laughs> I've been a dirty birdie. You have been a dirty birdie. Have I been a dirty birdie? You've been gone for so long. <laughs> I have been gone. I've been. Oh I was God. out of the country, and by that I mean I was in Texas, but I was also in Canada. Oh, so. Two great countries. <laughs> two great countries on their oh own. Oh my God, the, love uh, that. Secessionism is alive and well in Austin, Texas. I pray every day. <laughs> pray every day to go home to the homeland. <laughs> I'm kidding. Ne- I don't. I really <laughs> don't. Next year in the homeland. Right. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, Next time. Yeah, I'm glad though that we had a lot of time for this episode. Yes, uh, I almost, I literally almost just said uh, what this episode is, but I think we uh, we have some old business real quick before we we do have old in. business. Yes, uh, but it's super old at this point. So I know. Apologies. It's like your age. Oh, oh boom, zing, nailed I it. Will, I will leave your apartment right now. <laughs> Get out. <laughs> Um, if you remember our last episode, um, which was ages ago, yes, a billion years ago, right, was the super successful buddy, buddy cop, cop film. <laughs> Actually, was it was people people seemed to like it, so I was in the minority, as I am in real life. You're a minority, <laughs> yes, being a white male of a certain age, very yes. much so. Oh my god, it must be so hard for you. <laughs> it's really difficult. Uh, so one day I couldn't get my shoes shined. Oh, it was no. crazy. I've actually never had my shoes shined. So someday in the homeland. Um, but yes, yeah. So Buddy Cop Films was the last subject of our previous episode. Right. And uh, we had our poll up, which was kind of like a mishmash because yes. there's so many. But what do we have on the poll? We had so we had Lethal Weapon, right. Hot Fuzz, Tango and Cash, and other. And we told people to let us know. And only one person let us know. <laughs> right. And I think it was like a, a, a movie that we didn't talk about, right? Yeah, it was uh, Kate Walker. I, I, hopefully I'm saying that right. Uh, it's K-A-E-T-H. Um, and they wrote in to say, uh, I kept waiting for you to mention John McTiernan's send-up of the genre Last Action Hero. Which is funny, because I was all set to talk about Last Action Hero. And then we had so much to talk about yeah. that I completely forgot about it. Um, who, What won? So Hot Fuzz Hot won, won 55% of the right. votes. Uh, Lethal Weapon and Tango and Cash tied for second with 18% of the votes each, and then Other was 9%. So you guys really love Hot Fuzz, and I'm with you. I'm not surprised at all, because I, I realized after the episode and, like, just kind of being online, the genre is so, uh, kind of, like, it's, it, it's kind of, like, worn out. You yeah. know, like, it's, it's Wonder Years over, and Hot Fuzz really was, like, uh, a throwback and able like it well, captured all the fun of it and it was like new and modern and like yeah that's one of the things I loved about Hot Fuzz is that it's like a really brilliant distillation it's like a really f- like it's gonna sound crazy it's like a really fine whiskey right like it's like just a well barrel aged like it's like remember all the good things about yeah. buddy cop movies but none of the garbage like masculine grossness <laughs> uh, exactly I will say a friend of the show uh, is it Clutter and Kindle I think yes she, yeah, yeah she uh, tweeted. She, I guess she watched a Tango and Cash. Yes. Bless her heart. <laughs> and, and which was my pick. It was my favorite. And she said, no one mentioned how much like beefcake action, uh, is in this movie. And I was like, listen, I let everyone down. By- <laughs> I thought you were like very explicit about the beefcake action. <laughs> I mean, I, I just need to know better because that movie like truly is just like, Man boobs everywhere. Do you do you need to be alone now? Lady? I I'm touching myself. I'm just <laughs> so I was, We record this in person. Right. Let me stop that. Um, but yeah, uh, a good uh, takeaway from that though is, and and reason why I said that I like that we had so much time for this new episode. We don't have to see 
as many movies as I think yes. we do. Yeah, yeah. I saw far too many movies for buddy cop genre, and I think my brain just got spread too thin <laughs> to really focus in on what matters. Hot Kurt Russell and hot <laughs> Sylvester Stallone shirts off wet all the time. So just focus up, Louie, okay? I will leave this apartment. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, uh, but yeah, and I just realized, too, uh, except for the fact that we said our names, we didn't, we've didn't. we been away so long. This is the Mixed Reviews. Oh, You're listening hi. to the Mixed Reviews. Uh, and since every episode of a podcast is someone's first episode of a podcast, we're a podcast in which we take something in the film world mm-hmm. and we distill it down to what works and what doesn't. Right. Literally our favorite stuff and our least favorite stuff. So... But yes, so this week's topic, now that we got old business out of the way. New business. New business. And since it's the start of, you know, Halloween starts earlier and earlier every year. And uh, so since it's the start of the spooky season, uh, some people call it fall. They're dumb. (laughs) Uh, Nerds. Exactly. Um, We're doing Stephen King. Stephen King. King. Yes. So Stephen King movie adaptations. This is a, this is actually the, the fun thing about this podcast is we can kind of pick and choose what we want to do. And we've not done adaptations before so before we move into our rewind i want to give you a heads up i'm probably not going to give you i'm going to give you a little biographical information about stephen king but the interesting thing about doing adaptations is he hasn't written that many screenplays of his own right so he is responsible for the source material his name is on most of these movies except for lawnmower man and uh but they're not necessarily successful or failures based on stephen king right I think it might be, and it'll be interesting to see, you know, some of his work is better than others. Like, yeah, I mean, absolutely. His novels, I mean, and I haven't read a lot of his novels, but I'm like, oh, this premise is garbage, or yeah. oh, this premise is really cool. Um, and so it'll, it'll be interesting to see how that um, translates into film in our picks. Yeah, I read a lot of his novels when I was, like, younger and pimply-faced, so, like, a week ago. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. No, but when I was, like, 13, and I, <laughs> the funny thing is, I remember my dad being, like, such a non-Stephen King fan. <laughs> I remember I bought him The Dark Half at one point, and he was like, ugh, whatever. But he read it, because he was a good guy. Um, but, yeah, the uh, but yeah, I read so many of them when I was like 13, 14, 15, and uh, recently went and saw it and realized how much I don't remember of any of it. Like, I went and saw it with you, right? But also, uh, some of my other friends who like made it their mission to reread the novel before. Oh my god, and I was they Ambitious. were like, Yeah, exactly. And they were just like pumping out facts, and I was like, I don't remember. <laughs> so, yeah, no, I was the opposite. I, when you said you were like, we should do Stephen King, I was like, should we? <laughs> Is that what we should do? Oh, I, I you're like a horror mo- like master. Like yeah. you, everybody likes being scared, Louis, even no, if they don't know it. Absolutely not. I was like, I don't do roller coasters. I like. <laughs> I don't do roller coasters because the brain is literally hitting the back of the bed. Right. And that's not true. I do roller coasters all the time. (laughs) I just am... We saw it and you saw how I reacted. I did. And... It was pure joy. It was... You were laughing the entire fucking time. Yeah. And I was... I'm a monster. Screaming my fucking face (laughs) off. Like, I was underneath my seat, essentially. There was a point where I, I looked left to which you were sitting on my left. And it literally was like you were gone. I, I was, it was horrifying. I, yeah. I, the things I do for this podcast, Kevin, okay? <laughs> but, uh, so let's move into our rewind sure. to find out a little bit more about Stephen King. King was born on September 21st, 1947, making him 69. All right, all right, all right. Um, 
Oh, well, I know. Yeah, yeah. He's almost like by the time this episode goes up, we'll have a couple weeks, and then we can celebrate his Stephen King birthday. All right. Um, his father, Donald Edwin King, uh, was a merchant seaman, and his mother, Nellie Ruth, uh, was born in Scarborough, Maine. His father left when he was like two years old, uh, and it was literally under the pretense of buying a pack of cigarettes. What the fuck? Like as cliche Hello. as that is. <laughs> um, uh, they moved away and then they came back to Maine, uh, Durham, Maine, uh, when he was 11, um, where his mother cared for her parents until their deaths. Uh, King was raised Methodist and he's very religious as an adult. And I think some of that comes through in his writing. Really? Oh yeah. I have I, no idea. Oh really? I will get to that uh, in a bit. Um, as a child, King apparently witnessed one of his friends being struck and killed by a train, though he has no memory of the event. Uh, his family told him that after leaving home to play with uh, the boy, King returned speechless and seemingly in shock. Only later did the family learn of the friend's death. Some uh, com- commentators have suggested that this event may have psychologically inspired some of King's darker works, but King makes no mentions of this in his memoir on writing. By the way, King has written two memoirs, and they're actually both really good. Um, if you're interested in his nonfiction work, uh, Dance Macabre and On Writing, um, they're, I, I both... I think both of them are really fantastic, but Dance Macabre was written during, like, the, the cocaine drug era, and... Uh, Love that. Yeah, exactly. I'm in my cocaine era right now. <laughs> I'm kidding. I do not <laughs> like it. Um, uh, from 1966, uh, King studied at the University of Maine, graduated in 1970 with a Bachelor of Arts in English. That year, his daughter, uh, Nomi uh, Rachel, was born... He wrote a column, Stephen King's Garbage Truck, for the student newspaper. King held a variety of jobs, paper studies, including janitor, gas pump attendant, and worker on uh, at an industrial laundry. If you've ever read The Mangler, it's okay, about evil. Okay. Yeah, so like you see, he really does a does a good job at drawing from his own life. Um, in '73, King's first novel, Carrie, was accepted uh, by publishing house Doubleday. King had thrown an early draft of the novel into the trash. After becoming discouraged with his progress, writing about a teenage girl with psychic powers, his wife retrieved the manuscript and encouraged him to finish it. His advance on Carrie was $2,500. King's paperback rights have earned over $400,000. Casual. Yeah. King and his family moved to southern Maine because of his mother's failing health. At the time, he began writing a book titled Second Coming, later changed to Jerusalem's, Jerusalem's Lot. Can't say that before finally being changed to Salem's Lot. Um, it was published in 1975, and um, he said the you know the story seems sound sort of down home for me. I have a special cold spot in my heart for it. Cold spot. Yeah, he he said that in '87. Uh, his mother died of a uterine cancer in '74. Um, all the like, literally all this just sort of leads to now. Uh, during this time. He ended up having a, a massive drug and alcohol problem. Crazy. He, he wrote a lot on cocaine. Um, he, I mean, when you say a lot, he wrote. Yeah. He was a prolific man in the yeah. 80s. He was, like, pumping out, like, novel after novel after novel. Absolutely. Like, unheard of. And he really didn't get over his... Um, addiction? His addiction until, until the 90s. You know, uh, King's addiction to alcohol and other drugs were so serious during the 80s that, as he acknowledged in On Writing in 2000, he could barely remember writing Cujo. Shortly after the novel's publication, King's family and friends staged an intervention, dumping on the rug in front of him evidence of his addictions taken from his office, including beer cans, cigarette butts, grams of cocaine, Xanax, Valium, NyQuil, Dexa... Oh, 
cough medicine. Let's go with that. <laughs> and marijuana. As King related in his memoir, he sought help, quit all drugs, including alcohol, in the late 80s, and has remained sober since. The first novel he wrote after becoming sober was Needful Things. I can remember writing The Shining about this uh, dry drunk Jack Torrance and thinking to myself, boy... I'm glad I'm not that guy. <laughs> I drink a lot, but I don't drink that much. I'm not that bad. And then coming back to it years later after sobering up and saying, I was that guy. Yeah. Because there's whatever your subconscious is, it keeps sending out those messages. I made a decision to believe in God because it's better to believe than not to believe. Um, I came to that conclusion when I realized that I had addiction problems that were bigger than I could solve myself. And uh, so it was easy to say, well, if I've got a power greater than myself, okay, that's fine. I can, I can use that uh, to make life livable and, and, uh, and good. His children, he's, he has two children. One's a Unitarian minister. One is a writer himself. He wrote uh, Lock and Key, the comic book. Oh, cool. Joe Hill. Uh, he also writes novels on his own. A lot of people love uh, his novels. And the other big main event in Stephen King's life, before we move into adapting his work, is on June 19th, 1999, at about 4.30 p.m., King was walking on the shoulder of Main State Route 5 in Lovell, Maine, um, when Brian Edward Smith, who was distracted by an unrestrained dog moving in the back of his car, struck King with his car, um, and it caused King to land in a depression on the ground about 14 feet from the pavement. Um, King got really, really lucky. I had an accident. Yeah, that... I got hit by a van. Um, I got messed up. My wife was afraid somebody would buy the van and put it on eBay and, mm -hmm. and sell pieces of it or something. This is the van that almost killed Steve King. Yeah. <laughs> so we bought it and we, we cubed it. This is a story. I'm never going to live it down that I busted it up with a hammer or something. I didn't. I wasn't. But as to how I feel, yeah. I feel I feel really good. In 2002, King announced that he would stop writing, apparently motivated in part by his frustration with his injuries, which had made sitting uncomfortable and reduced his stamina. He has since resumed writing, obviously, but states on his website, um, I'm writing, but I'm writing at a much slower pace than previously. And I think that if I come up with something really, really good, I would be perfectly willing to publish it because it still feels like the final act of the creative process, publishing it so people can read it and you get feedback and people can talk about it with each other and with you, the writer. But the force of my invention has slowed down a lot over the years and that's as it should be. Huh. Good for him. Um, he is very political. Uh, he's actually really fun to follow online uh, <laughs> on Twitter. He really hates the president. And, uh, Love that. Good on him. Love and 100% uh, with you. King for president. Yeah, you you go, King. Um, I also wanted to pull out real quick before we move into our picks. Um, Show them the book. Yeah. Yes. Show them the book. Showing, it's so funny. It's audio-only podcast, but I'm literally holding it up to the microphone. Um, <laughs> one of my favorite uh, sort of texts on horror is this book called The Monster Show by David J. Scull. I've since heard that like some of his stuff is maybe not as academic as it should be, but I'll give him a pass for the moment. Uh, in The Monster Show, uh, he has an entire chapter devoted to Stephen King. Um, I don't think he thinks much of Stephen King, but I do think some of the things he says are interesting. Uh, just wanted to read a quick 
clip of this. Uh, horror writer and filmmaker Clyde Barker, citing the estimated 90 million copies of King's book in print, commented, there are apparently two books in every American household. One of them is the Bible, and the other one is probably by Stephen King. King's emergence as a household brand name coincided with large-scale economic shifts in the 70s and 80s. Not surprisingly, the accompanying human dislocation provided a fertile medium for images of dread. Um, he also does some more biographical stuff on King. Um, and he says, as with many superstars, King maintains a great deal of control over the packaging and marketing of his name. When the sheer numbers loom as large as they do in the case of Stephen King, some of this control can have amusing consequences. According to sources close to the subject, King vetoed a $22.95 price tag proposed by Viking for his novel, The Dark Half, concerned that his fans deserved a break. He asked that price to be reduced to $21.95. The publisher gulped. The initial print run was 1 million copies. At Stephen King's whim, a million dollars in publisher and bookseller revenues had just been wiped out. There was, in all likelihood, more than high-handedness to King's decision. He recalled in a 1985 Publishers Weekly essay that followed the paperback sale of Carrie, all of a sudden I could afford to buy hardcovers, something that had previously been a luxury. Not having to wait for paperback, King implied, was an important point of cultural validation. I used to look into the windows of bookstores with idle curiosity of, let us say, a construction worker looking at the necklaces on display at the windows at Tiffany's. See, he's not very nice to Stephen King, <laughs> but these are quotes from Stephen King. Um, beyond pricing, King also avoids alienating his readers by eschewing any hit of, quote, literary style. His prose often has the rhythm and cadence of transcribed speech, a near-total informality of dictation. In an interview with Fangoria magazine, King commented that, quote, a lot of his fan mail, uh, though not the majority of it, consisted of these quote, sort of labored, almost scrawled things in pencils from people who obviously don't read much or write much. This sounds like I've got a swelled head, but that's really what they are. I can read this book. I know the words in this book. A supreme populist king almost always appears in his publicity photos, casually dressed in jeans and sneakers, eager to chew, eager to chew the fat, ready to knock back a beer. We know he's incredibly rich, yet we know he's somehow one of us. Totally. And, and, like, obviously he's not going to be knocking back a beer. This book is a little bit older. It's from the early 2000s. Um, I've always loved that quote, and I've always sort of misquoted it, about Stephen King talking about his fans um, in the way of him sort of stating that, like, you know, he doesn't write in a flowery way. He oh, writes in a yeah. way that's incredibly accessible. I've said that to some people. Some people find that really insulting. I think that's one of the keys to his success. He's the most prolific author author of the 20th century he's yeah. sold uh, you know so many books um i don't think that's insulting to say that he, he writes in a way that makes people want to read that makes people want to read yeah, like that's I, a great thing i don't think i mean there's there's like the whole thing like oh it doesn't make you an asshole to be intelligent but also i don't think it makes you like uh a fucking numbskull to want right. to like have like an easy comfortable comforting like you know uh expression or like of content and stuff like that i don't, right. I don't, I don't know i feel uh, that's like so snooty pants like yeah. and it's not a shit on like anyone to be like you know what yeah i read stephen king novels or right whatever it is, like arl stein stuff like whatever it's like he's writing for everyone and like he, he thought about um people who couldn't afford you know hardcovers and stuff like that and uh, yeah and, it, and there's a reason why he has so many books and so many people right. read them and that hollywood is like Let's make some fucking money. Yeah, absolutely. And make all these movies. Um, and like, hopefully I made it clear. And for those who absolutely don't know who Stephen King is, hopefully that made it clear. But, you know, he is a horror novelist. He likes to think of himself as a suspense novelist. If you ask the ordinary run-of-the-mill 
reader, if there is such a guy or such a gal, I guess that I write uh, horror novels. I think that what I actually write are suspense novels. And what's the difference? I think that uh, the purpose of the horror novel is to sort of gross you out. My idea of it is, and I, I'm not averse to this, I will do this, it's part of the fun of it, is it's kind of, uh, at the, uh, it's a childish thing, the way that humor is, the two things are closely allied, they both elicit, when they work to their best, a, a vocal reaction from the audience. Laughter, if it's comedy, and a, a scream or a, a yell, if it's, if it's horror. But it's, they're both childish, and uh, it's kind of like uh, when you're a kid and you're sitting at the dining room table and you want to get your, to your sister or your brother, you kind of chew up your food and then, ah, you hang your <laughs> mouth open like that. Yes. That's horror. Suspense is a little more high class than that, so maybe that's why. <laughs> my I mother used to the say word. that was tasteless. That's tasteless. Yeah, that's right. Well, my mother, when I was a kid, used to say, Stephen, your taste is all in your mouth. And that's true, but it has made me relatively wealthy. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it has. Not even relatively. Very. He's like the most like I've said, most prolific writer of the 20th century, yeah. um, starting in the 70s with Carrie and uh, just publishing, like I said, one novel a year. And obviously those things are going to be incredibly attractive to Hollywood. Yeah, and it's weird because he's like very normal, but once yeah. you get into his like books and like the movies, it's like, He's got some shit oh, yeah, going absolutely. on. Like there I is mean, some wild stuff. There's clearly like, you know... Like, some of the movies are incredibly violent. He, I've noticed, um, and this is my own, so take this on me if you... He doesn't write a lot about sex, but when he does, there's trauma involved. Yeah. And, like, I, that weirds me out a bit, but, that you know, he seems to be a good Christian man, so... Right, right. I mean, it's... And, yeah, a lot of... There's a lot of trauma in yeah. general in these books and these stories, uh... And when it comes to sex, it also kind of like there is no there is nothing good about right. sex in. These. I've, re I've read interviews, and I don't want to misquote him, but he's essentially said like he doesn't find writing about sex to be important, you know, like and huh. I. So, I think that's why like there's not a ton of like right, but you know, I'd rather have somebody be honest about it than try and read like one of George R. R. Martin's sex scenes that sound like a floppy thirteen year old. Ah, oh my god! What? <laughs> Did I say that out loud? Um, that's wild. that's that's from somebody who's only made it twenty five percent through one of George R. R. Martin's books. So wow, whole twenty five percent. Yeah, exactly. You know, side note on on him, like I explained it once. I was like, you know, watching Game of Thrones is so different than reading the books. And my friend Tim was like, well, yeah, and like that makes sense. You would rather watch a soap opera than read a melodrama. And I was like, oh yeah, thank you. <laughs> <There it is. laughs> And the truth has been revealed. Yeah, but uh, or a Harlequin romance. That's what he said. Yeah, and uh, so yeah. Anyways, uh, shall we move into our picks? Do you think that's enough? Do yeah. you say anything else you wanted to say? I mean, I think we should mention that these movies have been coming out for as long as he's yes. been pumping them out. Uh, I mean, like, Carrie was published in the seventies. The first film adaptation was nineteen seventy six. It was yeah. Carrie. Yeah, and as prolific as he has been in his book writing, the movies started coming out literally as he was, like, proposing them. Like, they were yes. not even published yet, and they were like, we want the rights, we're gonna make this movie. Like, there was years in the 80s where two, three Stephen King movies were coming out Absolutely. at a time. Yeah. Uh, so just so you know, like, it was... I mean, I, even, like, I think of Christine, um, John Carpenter's Christine, came out the same year the novel was published. Yeah, like, yeah. The, the market has been flooded, and it's only been recently that there's kind of been... Uh, not as much. I mean, he's kind of had a re renaissance recently. Right. 
Um, obviously, Dark Tower and It and Mr. Mercedes just came out as a show. Uh, but in the 80s and 90s, it kind of was like inescapable. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we had a lot to get through. We had a lot to get through. I have a list right here of like over 100 films. Um, Disgusting. Yeah. I mean, a lot of them are remakes. A lot of them are sequels. Obviously, like, in my opinion, I discounted them. Like if it was yeah. like the fourth remake of Carrie or like the, you know, like the like Children of the Corn 97. <laughs> I was like, nope, nope. But uh, I also didn't watch any TV things, which I know are... Kind of important, I guess. Like, people really... Well, the, the, the thing about the, the TV thing, and what really shocked me, I, I watched a couple... I've seen a lot of that. I remember, like, as a kid being, like, excited to watch right. the TV miniseries. For the ABC, like, event. Yeah, exactly. But the what really struck me is... So, Carrie was the first film adaptation in 76. Um, the second film adaptation was Salem's Lot in 79 for TV. And oh. then The Shining came out in 1980. And throughout the 80s... There wasn't a single TV Stephen King thing. It was all theatrical. And it wasn't until It, the 1990 miniseries, that he went back to TV. And then it's sort of like as a kid, since that was like my, um, you know, like prior to teenage years and teenage years, the 90s, like, uh, like that's where I thought of him. Yeah. Like I knew, like obviously The Shining and and stuff, but like I thought of it as like his movies go to TV. TV. Yeah. Um, which I couldn't be further from the truth, I'll be honest. Right. Um, but yeah, the, uh, I don't know. He's had so many, so many adaptations and, uh, it's, it's a really interesting thing to look at. In most cases, my feeling is if somebody buys a, uh, a book to make a movie out of or a TV series, it's like sending a kid off to college, okay? You hope that they're going to do a good job and that they're not going to get into trouble and they're not going to get expelled and they're not going to be arrested or anything like that. But every now and then, that happens. You just hope for the best. And I've had, man, I've had terrific luck, with, you know, between... Shawshank, which I really did write, by the way, and The Green Mile and Misery and Stand By Me. There have been a bunch of stuff. Thank you. But remember, I didn't write those movies. I just wrote the source, although I think a lot of times the movies are better. This is just my personal opinion. That when they stick closer to the source, they, they tend to be a little better. Shall we move into our... Yes, our, our five-star reviews. Our five-star reviews. So this episode was... Uh, or this task, I guess, was a little bit challenging for me. Just because I was like, okay, I'm, I know going in I'm not going to like enjoy... A lot of this, like, I don't... I just... This is not my wheelhouse. Right. Um, but... Again, I had been wanting to see the. Sh- I'd never seen The Shining before. Finally saw that. Had never seen. Like I'd seen Carrie. Um, I'd seen Shawshank because my dad is my dad, and he was a man. So right. done. Um, but I landed on as my favorite um, adaptation was is Misery. Really? Yeah, that's amazing. I had never seen it, but like, I, it's been part of like the culture, right? Right. And um, so, Misery came out in 1987, or that was when the book was uh, published. Yes. Um, and the movie came out in 1990. It was directed by Rob Reiner, who had previously worked um, on Stand so, by Me, which is based off the short story "The Body," right? Which is about kids finding a dead body at a train track. 
Right. Stephen King has no memory. Right, right. <laughs> like, um, and Stand By Me is great. I had also never seen that, and I finally saw it, and I was like, oh my god, amazing. Um, Misery, I don't know, I, Kathy Bates is just, she's amazing. Amazing. Yeah. Um, this movie, James Caan is really great in it yeah. too, and I will, I'll be the first to say like, James Caan's like a great actor, but there's times I've seen him in movies where I'm like, well, we can even go back to, fucking Charlize Theron when we did the when he was in the movie The Yards with her and I was, anytime he's on screen I was just like I don't care you're like enough yeah <laughs> uh, so for those of you who haven't seen Misery it is about Paul Sheldon who's a writer and he is famous for writing this series of books about um, a woman named Misery Chastain um, he's in a brutal car accident um, after he finishes writing um, the final um, entry into this series where he kills off Misery because he wants yeah. to go back into like mainstream writing and away from romance. Um, but he gets into his car accident and he's saved by Annie Wilkes, um, played by Kathy Bates. Um, and she is his number one fan. Um, and she finds, like, she finds out who he is and she's just freaking out. And she, she has a pig also named Misery. Um, and she is nursing him back to health. Um, turns out she's a fucking psychopath. Um, <laughs> she reads, she, like, is able to read his manuscript for um, the final book, and she flips her shit when she finds out that he has killed Misery. Um, she reads his new book that's going to be, like, something that is not Misery-related, and she demands that he burns it. She, like, really just fucking, like, she basically drugs him, hobbles him. Um, the hobbling scene, is, it's so funny because the hobbling scene is not as graphic as people have a tendency to remember right, it. And right. I think that's what's really brilliant about the Hobbit, like being yeah. one of the most famous scenes that come out of the movie is like, you, the thing that sort of terrifies you or terrifies, I think most people is usually the thing you don't see. And I know yeah. some people will disagree with that. And they use cat people as an example, which is this great Val Luton movie. Ignore them. The thing that you don't see is always more terrifying than the thing that you do. Yeah. See. They show. So essentially he has been like sneaking out of the room to try and, you know, escape. And she, she realizes that he's been sneaking out. And so she takes a sledgehammer to his legs. Right. She puts a piece of wood between his ankles and then just goes for it and hobbles him. And it's like they show one yeah. ankle being broken in and uh, they don't show the other. But, and, but she, I mean, Kathy Bates' performance is just like so fucking textured and um, wild. I wanted to, um, there's a quote from the movie that I thought was really amazing. Um, and this is towards the end when, so essentially she tells him, you need to rewrite and bring Misery back. Yeah. And so she buys him a typewriter and gets him the right paper. And so he's working away while his like fucking legs are broken. And, um, and, and no one can find him. There's a great, there's a great sheriff and his wife. They are hilarious. <laughs> this movie literally vacillates between like horrifying, this funny sheriff I, character. I think that's like Rob Reiner's influence, but also, yeah. Oh, sorry. I'll let you yeah. finish. And then there's also like a funny romantic comedy bit when, um, he, uh, James Conn's character convinces her to have like a romantic dinner because he's getting close to finishing. And it's literally hilarious because she's like excited, excited to be on this date with her like idol, her hero. And he's like playing into her. He's like, Oh, I get some candles. And meanwhile, he's trying to drug her and she's just so excited. She like drops the wine. Ever. It's amazing. Um, but towards the end, she realizes that he's finishing the book and you know, he's going to leave her and, and you don't know if, what that means, if, if she's gonna kill him, she's gonna kill herself. Um, but she said, she's very depressed and she says, you'll never know the fear of losing someone like you if you're someone like me. When you first came here, 
I only love the writer part of Paul Sheldon. But now I know I love the rest of him, too. I know you don't love me. Don't say you do. You're a beautiful, brilliant, famous man of the world, and I'm not a movie star type. You'll never know the fear of losing someone like you if you're someone like me. And that truly just like, they're worlds apart. She is a country bumpkin, you know, unclassy lady. And, and she kind of, there's a lot of moments in the movie where she, uh, tries to say like fancy designer names and like completely, yeah, gets the pronunciation wrong. And he just kind of like smiles and nods and is like, okay, yeah, like, and, and this whole idea of someone like you versus someone like me. Um, the movie's great. Um, there were a million people that were cast before fucking they landed on James Caan. And I just want to run through this real quick. William, I didn't know this. You yeah. didn't know this? Yeah. Okay, so they originally had uh, given the part of Paul to William Hurt, Kevin Klein, Michael Douglas, Harrison Ford, Dustin Hoffman, Robert De Niro, Al Pacino, Richard Dreyfuss, um, Gene Hackman, and Robert Redford. Oh, my God. They all said no. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Um, and James Caan finally was like, I guess, sure. And, and he's great in it, you know? Uh, I did want to throw out there, since this is about adaptations, uh, the script was written by William Goldman, who's most famous for The Princess Bride, wrote the novel and then the script based off it. Uh, and what's interesting is he sort of had a long career with Stephen King as well, too, because he also wrote Hearts and Atlantis, which is based off of uh, the short story Low Men. I can't remember the full name of the short story, but it ties in the Dark Tower. So I had to remove all those references from the movie. Um, and, uh, and he also wrote, I think he directed two... Dreamcatcher. Yeah, which was like a huge disaster for him and he said really hurt his career and has not uh, adapted a Stephen King novel since. So I'm curious as to what he was able to bring to Misery. Yeah. And, or because like Misery and Hearts and Atlantis, Hearts and Atlantis is slightly supernatural but not very much. Um, what he's able to bring to Stephen King's like non-supernatural stories. Right. I mean this movie I, and I, I did a little research and so Stephen King wrote this in reaction to he wrote this big sci-fi epic called The Eyes of the Dragon yes. which was largely rejected by his fans. I've read Eyes of the Dragon actually and it's 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 not a sci-fi it's like a medieval fantasy like <laughs> nerds. Yes. So well, well so you were like yes please. Yeah. <laughs> um yeah and so he wrote this and I, I just love the idea of uh the success and being shackled by your success and like this one thing that people expect of you um, in this movie spoiler alert at the very end he ends up uh, killing Annie Wilkes with the typewriter like right um, and I think hello symbolism like it's just like he's taking this this thing is what's hurting him uh, you know his success and this misery cha- he wants to break out of this a thing that he's boxed himself into and this one fan is like literally going to kill him. Right. And in the end, he takes the typewriter and kills her. And it's just wild. Um, also, there's a, uh, he says of the story, um, take the psychotic nurse in misery, which I wrote when I was, um, having, when I was having such a tough time with dope. I know what I was writing about. Um, there was never any question. Annie was my drug problem and it was my number one fan. God, she would never leave. And so Annie literally, he's writing about his addiction. Right. And is being ever present. Um, a lot of these, his movies, 
it's like, oh, here's like a dog or a car that, and it's spooky or whatever. Right. And it's like, and it's <laughs> right, like and, and murder. <laughs> it's a clown, like murder. <laughs> and like it's it's very one note. Like I, yeah. I felt like this was so textured, and it wasn't just like this crazy. I mean, yeah, she's a crazy fan, but uh, it it really felt less like. Um, like, they were taking advantage of the situation. I think a lot of his books are kind of problematic. Yeah. A lot of stories are kind of like, oh, being crazy or psycho or whatever, like, mental. Well, I think, I think there's definitely... It's interesting, because I was thinking about this when we are watching it as well, too. Like, the book, it takes place in both the 50s and the 80s. And, and one of the things I like about the book is the idea that, like, it's sort of a condemnation of both the conservatism of the 50s versus the conservatism of the 80s. Because really, those are, in American history, like, the most prominent, like times of conservatism that we've had, you know, in, right. in the 20th century. Right. And, uh, but it's funny because like, I don't think Stephen King looks on those fondly, but I do think some certain filmmakers pick up on those things and think about it as like, a, because the, that's the thing, like stand by me is like, while eschewing all the political stuff is really fond about like the, the sort of right. like fifties, sort of... It's like sentimental. Yeah, exactly. And so I think a lot of the time... Like, I do find a lot of his books problematic, but I think part of it is, is he's trying to sort of highlight the... the like. Right. I, I'm not... I don't want to give him more credit than... But I think he's... I think when he writes, he's writing in a more, like, tongue-in-cheek sort of tone about, like, this is not the right way to think about this. And for some reason, I think that activates in people's brains, like, oh, this is the way it was. Right, right. Like, you know, because I, I think... Not to, not to take away from Dolores, I mean, uh, misery from misery, but uh, talking about it, I think part of the problem with the new version of it was like the the like problematic stuff didn't necessarily make much sense with the moving it up to the eighties, or it just felt like overblown. I don't know. Yeah. Anyways, I'll, we'll talk about this later. Yeah. But. No, I, I'll, the reason why misery stood out to me, it just wasn't like one evil thing is happening. Right. And, like, and it, and we have to fix the thing. And, like, you know, we need to, like, figure out what's going on. This was, like, a true human connection and yeah. the cat and mouse of it all. Uh, but, yeah, I love this movie. Rob Reiner is so great. And there, I think the only reason why Stephen King allowed this movie to happen was because Rob Reiner had done yeah. such a good job on Stand By Me. Um, because I think by this time, Stephen King was kind of, like, over people doing his movies and yeah. not doing them well. Yeah. Um, so he uh, was, uh, I think... Well, he, I mean, when when there's such a proliferation of them, there's, of course, going to be... Yeah. And literally, this was 1990. Yeah. So, like, it just took 10 years for him to be like, oh, fuck, people are taking my movies and... Right. Well, especially if it's something so personal. Is that oh, too? totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so what about you, Gavin? What did you like? Um, so I think we would be lying, or at least I would be lying, if I didn't say the best Stephen King movie was The Shining. I think that's... Uh, hands down, like, one of the best adaptations. I know Stephen King himself doesn't like it. You know, it strays too far from the book. He doesn't like it at all. No, and, like, the the fact that he prefers, like, the ABC miniseries from 97 is a wild to me. I have a real problem with The Shining, and uh, Stanley Kubrick knew that I had a problem with The Shining. Uh, I had a discussion with him beforehand. Uh, He said, Stephen, Stanley Kubrick here. Don't you agree that all stories of ghosts are fundamentally optimistic? I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, if there are ghosts, it means we survive death. And that's fundamentally an optimistic view, isn't it? And I said, well, Mr. Kubrick, what about hell? 
and there was a long pause on the telephone line, and then he said in a very stiff and very different voice, I don't believe in hell. And I thought to myself, well, that's fine, but some of us do, and some of us believe that ghosts may survive, and that may be hell. And that was sort of where I was coming from with The Shining. But in the novel, The Shining, uh, Jack Torrance is a difficult character, but he's fundamentally a, a sympathetic character. And I always visualized him as a piece of metal that's bent first one way and the other by these malignant spirits who basically want his son because his son is a psychically powerful person. So I saw these all as warm characters, characters that were being threatened by forces from without, from ghosts, from real supernatural creatures. And the film is extremely cold. Stanley Kubrick saw The Haunting as coming from Jack Torrance, from the Jack Nicholson character, whereas I always saw it from outside. So we had a fundamental difference of opinion about it. I always thought that the real difference between my take on it and Stanley Kubrick's take on it was this. In my novel, The Hotel Burns. In Kubrick's movie, The Hotel Freezes. You know, I have one complaint about The Shining, which okay. is just the only thing, like, Stanley Kubrick's so cold, like, his movies are very cold, um, that I don't think he understood that Jack Torrance is supposed to be sane before he, I mean, right. he's, he's like a violent drunk, he has problems, but right. like, he's like a sane person a before he gets, yeah, and there's this scene in The Shining as they're going to the hotel, and like, the, the Danny Torrance, the son, says something about the, the Donner party, and, um, Wendy, played by Shelley Duvall, is like, where'd you hear about that? And he's like, I learned it on TV. And Jack Nicholson goes, he learned it on TV. And I was just like, oh, he's nuts before they get there. Right. It's like, <laughs> like turn it down, there's, Jack. There's no, there's no character arc for Jack in that movie. He just goes from nuts to nutser. Um, but so, but one of the things I like about doing this podcast, I don't sort of have to pick the obvious ones. I can sort of pick... Um, so, so obviously, like, that's the pinnacle, I think. That's wild because I, I'd never seen it before. Yeah. And I finally did. And, of co- again, I know this movie in culture. Yeah. In, out in the real world or whatever, or the internet. And I watched it and I was like, huh. So this is what everyone's been talking about, huh? <laughs> well, I think definitely the reputation is sort of... It's hard. I mean, yeah. I, I realized coming into this movie that's already been, like, out in the universe for so long, it's... I was like, I guess that's kind of creepy. Um, like, and I was like, oh, this is like the cool, like, blood scene. But I wasn't, right. I wasn't as That's really Usually the blood gets off on the second floor. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. <it's laughs> <a success. laughs> um, I just wasn't terribly uh, thrilled by it. Yeah. It, it, I mean, Shelley Duvall, and when she's like right there in his face. Oh, and Kubrick put her through hell. Like, that's right. definitely one of the negative things about that. Right. Movie. I heard Kubrick about that. Was he like, awful to yeah. Um, like, art's important, but humans probably first. Right. Yeah, Kubrick's not really interested in humans. Right. Um, if you watch his other films, you'll find that out. But what I think is like the really unsung masterpiece of Stephen King adaptations okay. um, is Dolores Claiborne in 1995. True and queen. It's, and it's really funny yes. it also stars Kathy Bates. Yes. Um, so this was only a couple years after Misery. I read Stephen King wrote this for her. For her, yeah, exactly. And what's really cool, too, is the novel, which I've read, um, is one of the only Stephen King books written in first person. Oh, cool. So like, it's not read like the, his other novels. Um and uh, I just think this movie is wonderful. I don't yes. think there's anything yes. bad about it. Yes, um, yes. Directed by Taylor Hackford, um, 
who's had sort of a spotty career, but uh, he's he's married to Dame Helen Mirren, by no the way. way. Yeah, yeah. In fact, uh, the Judy uh, Parfit, who plays one of my favorite roles in the movie, was uh, a friend of hers, and she... Uh, let me explain the plot real quick. Uh, screenplays by Tony Gilroy, by the way, uh, who went on... He's, like, Academy Award nominated. Uh, he wrote Michael Clayton. Um, uh, he co-wrote and, like, sort of ghost-directed Rogue One, A Star Wars Story. Um, as, as everyone in Hollywood has ghost-written or directed <laughs> yeah, a Star exactly. Wars movie. Like, so he's, I mean, he's very famous. Um, but he also wrote Armageddon and The Devil's Advocate, so whatever. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, genius. And, and, and the Bourne movies. But uh, so uh, Dolores Claiborne's about uh, a woman... On Little Tall Island in Maine, um, where that ha- is accused of murdering the, she's a maid and she's accused of murdering the rich woman she works for, and her daughter Jennifer Jason Lee, uh, who has like escaped her and sort of like escaped her like lower class roots and gone to the big city to become a reporter, a ruthless reporter. Yeah, exactly. Comes back to town. Um, because their mother's been accused of murder as and during this there's also Christopher Plummer who's a detective who's like really gunning for Dolores Claiborne because years ago Dolores Claiborne's husband mysteriously died during a solar eclipse and everybody thinks Dolores killed him and got away with it and he wants to make sure that she doesn't get away with it this time and what's interesting about the movie is like Dolores herself is a very haunted woman by this event by her abusive husband uh, who was played by uh, David Strathairn, who's really fantastic in the movie, and, like, I'm always so used to him playing good guys, so, like, this is such a shock turn for me. Um, and, you know, she's haunted by him. Perhaps her mental health is slightly right. failing as well, too, because she seems to be living in these flashbacks that she keeps having right. to the solar eclipse and through her life of being employed by this rich woman and her daughter, who, like, hates her. They're and estranged. They're estranged, yeah. and her daughter believes... That, that Dolores killed her father and right. only remembers the good things. Right. Doesn't really remember them fighting in a way that wasn't, like, right. brought on by Dolores. Right. Um, which is, you know, selective memory. Stephen King not remembering his friend being hit by a train. Hello. Um, and I just think this movie is, like, a really, really beautiful adaptation of, of um, you know, a, a woman who's been through trauma, who's tried to do the best in her life and yeah. now comes, it's come back to haunt her in a way. Um, and I don't know if I want, I don't want to say too much because I think that the turn at the end, uh, which brings her daughter sort of back into her life is really great. And right. one of the most disturbing in a non horror sort of way. Yeah. Um, this movie is it, intensely satisfying. It, it's one hundred percent because it's it's a noir essentially. Like absolutely, it begins like you're like oh they kind of set it up like who it's a who done it right and they have like the main character who you think has done it and right I remember watching it at the beginning and being frustrated because all the characters are so like hard and rigid yeah but it slowly unravels and with each thread that comes off and and what's interesting is you're actually given an idea that apparently life on Little Tall Island which is not a real place but does occur in many it occurs in Gerald's game it occurs in Storm of the Century um seems hard right it doesn't seem easy it's right. like a fishing town it's like you know um I love this I, I uh, 
there's been many interpretations of the film. Uh, Dolores Claiborne has been cited as a self-conscious feminist film. The film has also been read as an example of maternal melodrama that features an idealized mother figure who sacrifices the need of, of her own for others. In the book Screening Genders, it is noted that one scholar considered Dolores Claiborne and Stage Door from 1937 to be the only truly feminist films made in Hollywood love in that. that they don't cop out at the end. I love that. Um, and I remember, because I remember finishing the movie and I was like, holy shit. Yeah. It's not, it, it, there are so many easy Hollywood ways out of this movie. Yeah. And it, it doesn't take any of them. Um, so uh, to her employer, the one that she's accused of killing, um, who is a really stern sort of like, you know, like. She's a society lady. Yeah, she like like, like Dolores like she makes Dolores hang the clothes down by the water uh, down from a hill and there's because a, that's see, the way the wind blows. Exactly. She's a scene where she's like holding martini glass and she's like three pins Dolores. You know how I like them. Yeah. <laughs> and, that's, and that's the entire movie like of her just being very specific on how she wants like the windows done and all her laundry. It's insane. And you like really like this bitch deserved to die. <laughs> yeah, and but then also you like get to learn, you get to know her right. as a as a fully fleshed out character, and that's the other thing is like, like you said, everybody seems harsh, and then like they the movie finds really interesting ways to flesh everybody out, including Christopher Plummer, who's really like a single minded like right. I need to get this woman for the murder. Uh, but uh, so jo- Jodie Parfait plays her employer, and I just want to talk about her really quick because apparently um, Judy De- not Helen Mirren Helen Mirren. Uh, Helen Mirren uh, told Taylor Hackford to cast her. She was a, she was a stage actress uh, who did some TV and stuff, but she was a friend of Helen Mirren. Helen Mirren was like, you need to... So he brought her in for an audition to read with Kathy Bates. And she read a scene with Kathy Bates and she left. And apparently Kathy Bates turned toward, towards Taylor Hackford and just goes, who was that? <laughs> you need to hire her. Uh, and I love that. Like Helen um, Mirren's friend. Helen yeah. Mirren. I want to be Helen Mirren's friend. <laughs> yeah, like, exactly. Put me in something with Kathy. Uh, um, but, uh, yeah. And uh, I just, I think it's all around beautiful. You know, right. it's, it's, uh, it's gothic in a way that's not obvious. And, like, I think everybody gives pulls a really great performance. I mean, how... Um, Jennifer Jason Lee did not win an award for this movie. Yeah. I don't understand. She's she's really brilliant. Kathy Bates is obviously really brilliant. Kathy Bates has said in interviews she thinks that this is her the best role she's ever played, uh, which shocked me because I actually would have assumed that it would have been um, Annie Wilkes. It would have been Annie Wilkes, but I think the the maybe the more roundedness and perhaps right. the way it ends is more to uh, her liking. Yeah. Um, how did you feel about her accent? Because I was a little bit. I think confused. Her, I think her accent was better than the. I think I only watched one season of American Horror Story with her in it. American Horror Story is a piece of shit. Don't watch right, it. Right, right, right. Um, and I think she did a, a main accent in that, and I was like, "Whoa, what are you doing? Is it a main accent? Yeah, yeah, I was, that's what it's supposed to be." I had no idea. I was like, "I don't know where this person's from. I, it seems vaguely southern, uh, but uh, it's funny you chose Dolores Claiborne because I remember I texted you about." A new um, segment I wanted to to put in yes. the podcast. Oh, I think everything in Dolores Claiborne is instantly quotable. But why don't you? Right, and so I think I want to call this segment. She said what? <laughs> um, and there are so many good um, quotes in a lot of Stephen King movies, but Dolores Claiborne truly has one of the most iconic quotes um, said by Miss Judy Parfit as what's her name? Vera Donovan. Vera Donovan. Um, and so. Just roll the clip, and here it is. Um, so sh- sh- there's two of them, but <laughs> the first one is, 
An accident, Dolores, can be an unhappy woman's best friend. It's a depressingly masculine world we live in, Dolores. Maybe I'm wrong. What if you're right? Husbands die every day, Dolores. Why? One is probably dying right now while you're sitting here, weeping. They die and leave their wives their money. I should know, shouldn't I? Sometimes they're driving home from their mistress's apartment and their brakes suddenly fail. An accident, Dolores, can be an unhappy woman's best friend. That was the tagline of the fucking movie. Right. Two Nettles. The the best one, though, and the one that is, um, sometimes, Dolores, sometimes, you have to be a high-ride bitch to survive. Sometimes, being a bitch is all a woman has to hang on to. And I love the fact that that line is, like, the first time you hear that line in the movie, Dolores says, sometimes being a bitch is all a woman has to hang on to. Right. And you don't think, like, you're like, oh, that's clever, whatever. You don't think it's going to come back. But you think also, like, this is talking about what Dolores and what she feels, and, like, this is, like, informed by her, and you don't even realize it's not from her. Like, this is learned from some other woman. Right. Viridana says it to her. Sometimes, Dolores... Sometimes you have to be a high-riding bitch to survive. Sometimes being a bitch is all a woman has to hang on to. And then, <sighs> towards the end of the movie, Jennifer Jason Lee says it! And it's just like, one of those things, yeah. It's, it's amazing. I'm sorry, Mother. Sometimes being a bitch is the only thing a woman has to hold on to. There's a ton of... You Truly know, feminist movie. Yeah, th- it's so funny because those literally would have been everything um, uh, I would have I picked, too. Uh, Please go see Dolores Claiborne. Um, it is so fucking good. And I would also like to give a shout-out to... I know this will only interest a very small portion of our audience. Uh, New York City Opera is doing the New York premiere of a Dolores Claiborne opera later this year. Oh, um, okay. I'm seeing it in October. And uh, I'm very, very excited for that it. That sounds amazing. So, yeah. Uh, it's a contemporary opera. It's sunny in English. If, if you're worried, if you are one of those people that's like, oh, I couldn't possibly like opera, like, check out an opera in English. I think it'll change your mind. You'll be fine. Yeah. Also, Gavin does opera because he's a fancy bitch. Oh, a fancy bitch. <laughs> Don't look at me, Louie. All my money's tied up in cash. Oh, you dirty birdie. <laughs> uh, I want my China pig. I'm <laughs> um, sorry. <laughs> but... <laughs> Uh, I think it's also funny that we, I mean, I guess we talked about The Shining, um, but we're, you know, there there are um, grosser movies yeah. um, of Stephen King's and uh, more, I mean, more supernatural. I mean, I, I think the uh, Brian De Palma, Carrie, the first film yeah. is, I still think it's really brilliant. I think it really understands. I think it it's so weird to say because like the, the latest remake of Carrie was, was directed by, a you woman. know, a woman and like, I still don't think she quite tapped into it. Like, I think for some reason, Brian De Palma's version really understands what that story is about. Um, Though I will admit, like, there is a certain, like, masculine turn to it because, like, it treats menstruation like it's uh, this, like, weird, horrific thing. Uh, yeah. Uh, but I I am a big fan. I'm actually weirdly a big fan of the 1983 movie version of Cujo, which actually takes out all the supernatural elements from the book. 
Um, I like uh, John Carpenter's version of Christine, even though it's not that great for me. I like Christine also. Yeah. I thought it was funny. Um, and also, not only is it funny, like, I think the effects in Christine are really amazing Incredible. for pre-CGI. Yeah. Like, the part where the car is putting itself back together, it's Insane. just like, yeah. I, I think there's a bunch, I mean, obviously, uh, Shawshank Redemption, uh, yeah. I, I think Shawshank Redemption's great, though it's on every five minutes on TNT. Right. Um, I don't actually like the Green Mile. I know a lot of people so do. So long. Of the spookier things, I I really enjoy Pet Cemetery. Yeah, I like Pet Cemetery, which was yeah. terrifying. But and I like. I hate that kid, but that's that's fine because he gets his comeuppance. So <laughs> and um and I liked. I mean. For as terrified as I was at the new It, it was it was good. Yeah, I thought the new It was good. I actually like the '90s miniseries. It's cheesy as all hell, but like Tim Curry's really giving it. And I, and I like <laughs> as he always does. And I like the fact that Bill Skarsgård did something different with Pennywise than Bill than right. Tim Curry did. So, right. um, I want you to go first for your one star review. Oh, is it time for our one star reviews? For every good turn, there's like three bad turns. Like and ten thousand percent. Uh, and there's so many of them that you, I feel like you go with the Night Flyers real bad, um, which I just recently rewatched for some reason. Um, I had seen it before too, and I knew it. Uh, the there's a TV movie that uh, Lifetime did a Stephen King adaptation. Lifetime? Yeah. Ladies were just like lining up. Yeah, exactly. Horror. Well, it's a rape revenge film. It's Uh, 2014's Big Driver and stars Maria Bello and Anne Dowd and I really like... Big Driver? Yeah. And I really like both of them but like I... You know... Maria Bello deserves better. Yeah. For as much as I like horror movies rape revenge is like my least favorite turn in the genre and like watching Big Driver... I did it last weekend or two weekends ago, and that was literally the the time where I was like, "I'm I can stop watching Stephen King movies I'm good. now. I'm, I'm good. good. Uh, that one's really bad." Uh, but I did want to. The I think the worst one of the worst worst ones is from 1993, and it is a TV miniseries. And I know we normally try and stick to theatrical releases, but he's so prolific. It's uh the Tommy Knockers, which is a four hour miniseries uh, from as I mentioned '93. It it's so, so bad. It's essentially, like, a town in Maine. Shocking. Wow. Um, where, like, an artifact starts being dug up, and it starts to, like, possess the town and sort of, like, make them dig it up. But it also causes, like, all these other supernatural things. Like, this kid wants to be a magician, and he makes his little brother disappear. And, like, um, the this woman has a husband who's cheating on her, and the TV tells her to kill him, and so she does. Well, what if there's some other explanation for the lipstick? to do something about it. Yeah. You are. You are. There's this woman who can, like, read everybody's thoughts, and then on top of it all, there's Jimmy Smits, who plays an alcoholic who's also a writer. And let me tell you, if you are not a writer or a teacher in a Stephen King movie or a child, that's it. (laughs) Like, those are are the professions you have. Right. Um, And, uh... He's a he's a writer who's an alcoholic and it's like destroying his marriage until his wife becomes psychic. But he also Ugh. happened to have an accident when he was a kid and had a metal plate put in his head. Of course, so um, none of the alien people can read his brain. Um, it's really bad. Stephen King has referred to the novel as one of his worst novels. Um, he said he wrote it at the height of his uh, drinking problem, his drinking alcohol problem. He called it a quote awful book. I want to say and. Um, and it's just a mess through and through. I mean, it's literally, for those of you who are like deep 
science fiction fans. There's a bunch of these that came out in like uh, the 1950s and, and later Quatermass movies. And there's a movie called Quatermass in the Pit. And it's 100% just a remake of Quatermass in the Pit. It's an alien thing that starts possessing people and like it's like pod people, invasion of the body snatchers, that sort of thing. Um, it's Dreamcatcher. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And like it has one of the most unsatisfying endings. Like, uh, I guess in the book it's even worse, but essentially Jimmy Smith's like they finds a way into the thing they've dug up. It's an alien spaceship. The aliens are using, they've been like sleeping and they're using people to, as to power their ship. He like takes control of the ship and flies it out, uh, into the atmosphere and blows it up. Uh. Apparently, and like everybody in the, in the show, like in the movie, everybody's sort of fine. Um, afterwards, and but in the book, apparently they all die. Like they, everybody that was possessed. I feel like the the books are a lot uh, more gruesome. Yeah, yeah, they're usually darker. I feel like, um, but like Mark Helgenberger uh, from CSI is the the his wife in the movie, um, and I just feel bad for everybody involved. Uh, Robert Carradine. Uh, is in it and he like his son's the one that goes missing but he becomes obsessed with making a machine that can create like the best BLT or something what like it's just the most random collection of things it's sort of like the criticism that people lobby against Stephen King which is like he takes something that's normal and is like spooky. make it spooky right um, what but network the, put this out CBS and the one that kills me the most because like I don't hate her I just feel bad for her especially because of um her her sort of life, but Tracy Lords is in it. Um, Tracy Lords, if you don't know, is one of the most famous porn stars in the world, and if you've seen one of her porns, um, you're most likely a creep, because they were almost all done before she was 18. Really? Yeah, and, um, yeah. She, I'm getting my phone. Yeah, and so she, uh, she then transitioned in, into acting. She's been in John Waters' film. She's in the first Blade movie. She's actually really good in the first Blade movie. Um, and, uh, but she's awful in this movie, and I think it's because they hired her to be Tracy Lords. I think they hired her, like, she plays a sex symbol. She invents, like, a lipstick that, like, disintegrates people Love in that. the film. Yeah, and uh, it's awful. It's just a collection of awful, awful things over and over and over again. So, yeah, do not see... The, I think what disappointed me the most was... Uh, uh, oh, no, it was ABC. I'm sorry, not CBS. Oh, ABC. Um, uh, what upset me the most is... This is something people that are that are slightly younger than me are not going to like as much. But we used to have these things called video stores, kids. Ugh. And the horror movie section of the video store for a long time until I was like a teenager. My local video store wouldn't let me rent anything R-rated till I was like 13. Really? Yeah. And so... A full 13. Wow. I know. <laughs> and so I remember like the, the like the boxes, the, you know, the every, the artwork to every... And the Tommyknockers was one of those movies that just has, like, the scariest looking artwork and everything. And I always meant to see it. And I was like, so when we did this, that was one of the things I was, like, really excited. I was like, that Salem's Lot, which, by the way, Salem's Lot is genius. Um, I should have mentioned that before. But, and so I watched Tommyknockers and I was so crushed. So you just watched Tommyknockers? I was so crushed at how bad it was. Because I have all these specific memories of, uh... Um, of lusting to watch yeah, exactly. as a child. Yeah, just looking at it at, at the store. And the screen, the adaptation's by Lawrence D. Cohen, and literally there's not, like, there's not enough information about him to fill a Wikipedia page. There's oh. no link on Wikipedia. So, as you can imagine, not great for Soul his career. Crushing. Yeah. 
Tommy Knockers is a piece of shit, and I do not recommend it um, unless you're like in the mood to to really just hate on yourself. Love that. But uh, Jimmy Smith is real bad in it too, and I actually don't mind him. So yeah, doesn't make good decisions sometimes. No, no. So what is your one star review? Um, this is going to be a controversial pick. Oh, interesting. Don't at me. Um, at him, everybody. There, there are plenty of bad movies. Yes. Um, but most of these bad movies I thought were kind of like fun. Also, like Maximum well, Overdrive is garbage. Yeah. But I was like, this is silly. I believe he actually wrote the screenplay. Yeah, he wrote and directed, directed it. Oh, that's right. It's one of the ones he directed. Um, yeah. and also like the ACDC like was fine. Like the, all the music was by ACDC. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, that's kind of fun. Um, can you imagine him directing a movie though no. at the height of his cocaine problem? Like, no, I, I, <laughs> he's like machines, craziness, weird. Um, Sleepwalker is really bad, but also yes. kind of fun. And that's um, a, that's an original screenplay. Like, there's very few of them that are original. Screen- it's like that Storm of the Century, Rose Red. Um, but I, I like Sleepwalkers as well. I think it's, it's trash, but like it's funny. Like the cats are gonna kill them. I love it. <laughs> um, my least favorite movie that I watched was actually Cujo. Really? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I understand. I don't... It's... And here's the thing. It has two things in movies that I hate. Kid actors yelling. Yes. And there's a lot of it. Yeah. Like, literally, when he's in the car with the mob and he's screaming his fucking face off. A third of that movie takes place in the car. Right. Like, that's tough to pull off. And I think that's why I like it, is I'm very impressed that they... I mean, it. I read about this poor... The actress, and she was D. like... Wallace Stone. She had... She was, like, was exhausted afterwards. She, would, like, was hospitalized. Yeah, yeah. Um, but literally, all I could think of was, like, my mom would be like, shut the fuck up. A quick smack to the face. I, I also love that, by the way... So, Cujo's a movie in which a dog gets rabies, right. and, like... Starts, it starts murdering. Starts murdering. And uh, in the books, it's possibly more supernatural. It actually connects into, like, Pet Cemetery. Right. And um, it's and funny. The, and the Dead Zone. And the Dead Zone, yeah. And it's funny because... Oh, the Dead Zone, by the way. Fucking go watch the Dead Zone. Possibly the second best adaptation outside of The Shining. But uh, it's funny. Dolores Claiborne also, the novel, has, like, one supernatural element. And it connects into Gerald's game. Ah. But, uh... That poor dog. Yeah. Uh, I did some research. They used five to thirteen. Like depending on who you ask, five to thirteen dogs were used. Oh my god! Uh, I know nothing about behind the scenes, so it's it's wild. Um, this is directed by Louis Teague. Um, originally, uh, Peter Mendek was um, directing it. He left two days into production. I don't know what the fuck happened there, but he left. Um, King apparently loves this adaptation. He is obsessed with this movie, um, even though he doesn't remember writing this novel at all. Right. Exactly. Um, so there was either five to 13 dogs that were used, and each of the dogs had a specific skill. There was one dog that would bark on command. There was another dog who could, like, run a specific path. There was one dog that they trained to lunge at an actor if the actor had, like, would lunge also. So each... And I think the dog trainer had even asked, can we use a different breed of dog? Because St. Bernard's are famously um, not trainable. Oh, really? And also, St. Bernard's are such friendly monsters. Right. They had to wiretape their tails down because they were wagging their tails too like 
all through the, the filming. Aww. They said for the dogs, the filming was a big game and that they were enjoying themselves just like playing around too right. much. And they were like, during filming, they're like, this looks, the dog looks too happy while he's attacking this person. Um, they had synthetic dogs made. There were men in dog costumes. Um, I was horrified watching this movie, seeing the dog run into that fucking car over and over again. I yeah. was like, what is happening? Apparently, uh, they were, they, they had mechanical dogs. And so no dogs were harmed in the making of this film, but still I was like, gross. They had, they made like sugar and like egg white stuff for the like, foam. Right. Yeah, yeah. And I just like, there's like shit all over this dog's face. Um, there was also a St. Bernard suit that they had made to put on a golden retriever <laughs> um, or like a Labrador just in case because labs are such easy uh, right. to train. Um, apparently, they, they didn't end up using that. Oh, my God. But I, was, hope, I hope some like intern or PA has that like in their closet. Right, somewhere. right. Um, but they had the, the, the lab uh, um, for backup. Um, apparently, also, uh, one of the stunt ladies for um, what's her name? A D. Wallace Stone, yeah. She she did a bunch of the stunts where the dogs were attacking them, and they filmed it, and it was fine. She lunged forward again, though, because she was so excited that they got the take, that the dog lunged forward again also, and bit off her fucking nose. Oh my god! Um, and apparently this woman, though, was a pro. Like, they put her nose back on, but... She, <laughs> this is casual. She's a casual. pro. Just stick it back on. She, like, burned off... Her, apparently, I, I, I went too deep. She burned off her eyebrows during the filming of Jaws, apparently. Oh, um, those will grow back. Yeah. She's a pro. <laughs> I just, I, I have, I got no joy or like there was no fun in this movie for me. I was like, and, and I think I, in the novel, I, or Stephen King has said, you know, the, the, this was a good dog. Right. He was a good boy. And the, no one should take from this movie that how dogs are scary. And it was how rabies affects the dog and blah 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 and the, apparently the novel has a lot more towards the ending this movie I felt also in the, in the story the woman the wife character she cheats on her husband he finds out and it felt a lot like she was just being fucking punished for her cheating yeah, yeah. ways I was like I forgot about that so yeah and she like at the very end he like he files a missing person report because he can't find his wife they end up and they, they finally find her but only after like she like gets inside the house right she finally gets out of the car right They and they, and they kill Cujo yeah um and the kid, and, and, and it, the only reason why she does is because the kid is dehydrating and about to die. Yeah. He, yeah, I remember that. I remember that being, like, traumatic. Yeah, and yeah. he and he is uh, on the verge of dying. In the novel, apparently, he dies. Oh, yes. Yeah, and, yeah, and I did know that. And that's yeah. how, like, the, the husband and wife, you know, get back together and, like, you know, reunite over this loss. Um, in the movie, he survives, and the husband character forgives all. And I was like, oh, the husband came back and, like, saves the day and everything's fine. Barf. I just, ugh. I just want to throw this out there, and I was going to mention this more up front, but I wanted you to get through everything. Uh, the fun thing about Stephen King having now written for forty years is that times have changed so much that Cujo is one of the few of his novels that I think just really could have been solved with cell phones. Right, one hundred percent. Literally, um, there's a fucking dog here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Animal control, come get me. He's got rabies. I'm sure you've done this before. Right. <laughs> uh, the. Yeah, it, so that's but, really funny. And I, I, I know it's probably like a really well-made movie or whatever, but like... I, would, I think it is, but yeah, no, I mean, I completely understand. Like, it's a very, like, I don't know. It's nothing I would... I obviously didn't even rush to rewatch this, it or anything. This movie has kid actors and um, good boys turned into bad boys. <laughs> and I, I also am not a huge fan of kid actors, so I understand. So I guess that would should move into our fast forward. Then. Yeah, yeah. I guess uh, I mean 
So as we mentioned before, we both saw it. Yes. Uh, it is out in theaters, and it is making like mucho box office mucho. for some reason. Even though they're still they're talking about it, and they're talking about casting the the sequel because. For those who don't know, it is an it's a twelve hundred page novel. It takes place both with the characters as adults and children, and both adaptations have decided to do kids first, adults later. Um, and so the film that's out right now it's a two and a half hour version of half of the book. Right. Um, New Line, even though they've been planning it as two movies for years, still has not greenlit the second film. But I'm sure it's going to happen. It has to happen. Right. And also, because of like this bump, obviously, Stephen King's, we're going we're gonna to be doing so many more remakes, so many more. Right. I'm sure somebody will remake The Shining at some point, some idiot. <laughs> um, but, uh, but he does have a lot of other things coming up besides it. Also, Dark Tower this Dark summer, Tower. which was a Flop. big... Disaster, and that that's been planned as like a five movie thing with TV series in between. Uh, I saw Dark Tower. I think it was trash. Um, I didn't watch it, and I I just can't imagine from the financials that anyone's like, yeah, let's do more of these. I know, and I that's what I'm curious to see if they still decide to move forward with that. But that's also a movie like the main character they decide to go with like a kid, and I was like, great, boo. Uh, yeah, and so he also has Mr. Mercedes out right now. Yes, which is on the Audience, audience Network. It's at and channel. Um, there's something called Castle Rock. Castle Rock is his new thing that he signed up with Hulu. So uh, in, last year he had a miniseries based on his novel 112263, which I think is actually a really good uh, novel that he's written. The ending's a little weak. But the Hulu did like a, a miniseries adaptation starring James Franco. Not being annoying. Oh, that's right. The yeah. whole like future past, whatever. Yeah, yeah. The Kennedy assassination right. thing, and um, it's it's worth checking out. Uh, because of this, because it did really well for Hulu. Hulu's assigned him to a TV show called Castle Rock, which is essentially going to knit together a whole bunch of his short stories into a um sort of uh not an anthology, but like I guess like a drama. That takes place in Castle Rock, Maine, having oh, to deal with a lot of a lot of different characters from a lot of novels, you know. So probably Needful Things takes place in Castle Rock. Oh my god! Um, the uh, yeah, so like I think a lot of those characters will be involved. I think Sissy Spacek's involved actually, which is cool because this is the first time she's done a Stephen King thing Love since uh, Carrie, you know. Uh, but then, yeah, so there's that. There, As you mentioned, Dark Tower. The Stand? Um, the Stand, uh, which... A remake, I guess? Because they made it... Yeah. It was a TV movie? Yeah, and I, that's, I'm curious to see if... Uh, what is going to happen with The Stand, especially since... Um, so Josh Boone's attached to it. Oh, okay. Director. Um, but it's been... So, delayed. It's delayed while he's working on New Mutants right now. Oh, okay. Because uh, the, the character that McConaughey plays in The Dark Tower is essentially the Randall Flagg character oh. who is the villain in The Stand. To my not, it's been for I've read both The Stand um, and a lot of The Dark Tower. Uh, Randall Flagg's also the villain in um, uh, The Eyes of the Dragon. Oh, no way. So it's it's all interconnected Stephen King thing. I'm curious as to what they do with The Stand. Um, I, I'm reading right now, it says, you know... Um, blah, blah, blah. Josh Boone, uh, it's been delayed once again while director Josh Boone completes work on New Mutants and the standalone King property revival... Fans may be disheartened by how the stand remains the most difficult King novel to adapt, but Boone is clearly a devotee. You know, I'll be honest, there's problems with the miniseries, but, uh, and as much as I think he's kind of a douche now, um, Gary Sinise, as, as the lead character in the stand, is the most inspired casting. And I, like, even though he's like 
30 years older than he was. That's an exaggeration, but like, I would still, still cast him as the main character to this day. Um, but, uh, there's something called Gerald's Game. So Gerald's Game, and I, I'm very excited about this. Uh, Gerald's Game is, uh, coming to Netflix, uh, mm-hmm. next month, actually. Um, this is the one I've been looking forward to. It oh starts I just read the synopsis. I am wet. It is, it has been, um, known as one of his, like, unadaptable novels for years and years and years. Um, it's, a, a film that's starring Carla Giacchino and Bruce, um, what is his name? Bruce Greenwood. Bruce Greenwood. Um, the, the novel is about a man and a woman whose marriage is, not, like, not going that well. They decide to go on vacation to, like, a secluded area. He handcuffs her to the bed to, to do, like, some wild sex. I bet you think your husband will be back any minute. Try to go for help. There's no one for miles. Gerald? I'm sorry, baby. You don't get to know my name. I don't like this. I'm serious. Stop. I don't like that. Like, stop it! Play. Is this really what it takes these days? God, how do we go so wrong? We were happy once. Where were we? Gerald? What? What's Gerald? Oh. Gerald! And then he has a heart attack, and, like, she freaks out while he's having a heart attack and, like, knocks him to the floor, and he dies. And so she's left there alone with her thoughts while she's, like, trapped, uh, handcuffed to this bed, trying to get out. There's no neighbors around. The water is out of the way. And um, it's just really great. But what's interesting is you begin real like, because she gets really, she panics when she's handcuffed anyways. Um, this ties back to something that occurred in her childhood. Remember how we were talking about sexual misdeeds right, right. during the eclipse on Little Tall Island. Oh, shit. So in the novel Dolores Claiborne, which I'm sure this will be skipped for Gerald's game because there's been years since the... In the novel Dolores Claiborne, during the eclipse, Dolores has a vision yeah. of the main character from Gerald's game in distress and she doesn't understand why and that connects the two oh wow and so like they like i'm really excited for gerald's game i was so happy when we were doing stephen king because i was like even if we don't make it before it comes out we'll make it before gerald's game comes out and i'm really like i hope nothing but the best for this movie there are so many things like we already mentioned like a million things yeah there's a miss tv show coming out oh it's already out it's uh i it think is? it's first season already wrapped yeah it's on spike tv I don't understand why you'd make a Miss TV series because I think the movie's really brilliant. Stephen King will publish until he dies. Right. And I know, like we said in 2002, he said he wasn't going to write any books anymore. That's completely false. Right. And people will just keep making him, no matter how dated, no matter how, like, there was an adaptation of Cell that came out last right. year, yeah. which was an absolute piece of garbage. And the book, when it came out, was literally Stephen King being like, you know what? Spooky cell phones. So, like... And then John Cusack was like, yeah! Yeah, exactly. 20 years later. So what do you think it is about, like, the Stephen King adaptation that sort of... I think it's, it's just easy to get to. I mean, the Hollywood pitch is, like, everything, right? Yeah. And so if it's, like... This car is possessed and killing things. That's an easy sell. And so when it cuts, to, comes down to like, here is a story about a dog who gets bit by, you know, and it's, it's digestible. And, yeah. uh, and, and for the masses, that's everything. That's why people like bought like his most successful things, like The Shining. Yeah. Um, Carrie. It, these are about like specific yeah, things. Yeah. It's easy to understand, like, right. telekinetic girl having a bad time right haunted hotel with a psychic kid that wants a psychic kid right misery like, like all those yeah. all those movies are about very specific things that it's not like too hard to get through or uh, like figure out you yeah. know um and they're spooky as shit 
You know? Yeah. I think, uh... I still stand by the fact that I think everybody likes being scared. Whether they... I still stand by me. (laughs) The one thing that I think is really interesting about Stephen King's work is... You know, I mentioned before he's religious. There is a 100% belief in him in good and a 100% belief in evil. And I think he thinks of them as sort of exterior forces. You know, like, it's... It's not necessarily evil people or good people. It's like an evil, it's like a force that makes an evil hotel or like in Salem's Lot, it's like an evil house that brings the vampires in. You know, there's like an evil force and a good force. And I think that sort of ties back to his religion. I'd be curious to see. Yeah, I mean, I I think the reason why I reacted so crazily to it was because I, it mind fucked me. And I yeah. was like, I, I was like, there is evil out there. That's right. all I, all I could think of was like, there's evil in this world. And it manifests not just as a, a spooky clown, but it manifests as the dad who like is taking advantage of his daughter. Right. And the dad who like is shooting like the ground to like, to his right. son. And like, and it manifests as the bully who is like literally cutting kids open. Like, yeah. I was like, there is evil everywhere. Right. And, uh, that's a lot of what he like writes about like in the in the evil maybe not necessarily the inherent evil um even though i will say there are certainly uh like in some characters where it's like this is an evil character and just literally wants chaos and anarchy yeah like the president character in the dead zone yeah like fucking love the dead zone that was our discussion on stephen king if you have any thoughts and spooky thoughts yourself and you want to contact us you can find us many ways online we're on twitter at at the mixed reviews you can find us on facebook just type in the mixed reviews or you could send us an email at reviewsmixed at gmail.com uh you can oh sorry yeah, yeah you can download us like literally everywhere google literally Play, every- itunes we're like we have some episodes on SoundCloud SoundCloud Stitcher Radio like we are available guys we're available at your beck and call I'm very available hit us up on the apps on the apps (laughs) LinkedIn (laughs) Christian Mingle contact us any way that you want find us online guys and uh, we're gonna go away and discuss what we're gonna do in two weeks alright see you guys bye